The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. Hey, everyone, and welcome to our throwback episode. In our throwback episodes, we are reintroducing you to some of our most popular episodes. This is great for new listeners who want to learn more about the work we've done in the past, and it's a great refresher if you've been a listener for a long time. Enjoy. Liz, thanks for joining us today. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm better now that this podcast interview is happening. I'm excited to have you. Oh, yes. Absolutely excited to be here. Fantastic. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Well, again, my name is Liz Milan, and I am the director of procurement here at a company called Discover Org. You will also know us as Zoom Info. We are a company that does firmographic data and business intelligence. So you can see into an organizational structure. You can take a look at different events that have happened within a company and get all of the contact information for those different types of key people that you might be working with. So I do a lot of buying around technology. Obviously, we're a tech company. And then I'm also an adjunct at the University of Portland, where I teach negotiation and persuasion for the MBA program. Fantastic. Well, we are excited to have you here. And we are especially excited for the three topics that you're going to have us uh, focus on today. They're really great. Can you give us a quick summary of the the three topics we're going to discuss? Absolutely. So these are are topics that are near and dear to my heart because I basically live my life in front of a computer. So we're going to be talking about digital negotiation today, how we frame a negotiation before it begins, how digital purchasing has kind of changed our perception of what the range of possibilities are, and then how these types of technologies are changing the very conduct of negotiations, including aspects like speed and trust and honesty and, you know, what are tactics that make sense for us in those contexts. Fantastic. I am unreasonably excited (laughs) about this because (laughs) this is something that comes up in my workshops all the time. People always ask about negotiating via email, even text message on the phone, those type of things, because the majority of our negotiations now externally are happening from a distance digitally. And so this is a great, a realistic and practical episode today. So this is going to be good. Great. So let's start off with framing. So let's get an operational definition on the table first. When you say framing, what do you mean? So one of the things that I think is really often forgotten is that we expect a negotiation to begin when we start getting on the telephone or even when we start walking into a boardroom or, or what have you. But all of the encounters that we're having before that are really where the the bulk of our negotiations are going to occur, right? So how did we enter into a conversation to begin with with the vendor? So a lot of, like I said, my basis is going to be around vendor negotiations. So that's kind of the context which I'll be using. And when it's like, am I going to be as a, a procurement person, the person that starts that conversation? Or do I have a, a technical stakeholder be the person that opens up that door? Am I going to ask for a, a document or some other kind of proposal right out of the gate? Or do I want to see what kind of an implementation they have and what kind of features they have? And those two types of things really can change where you're baselining and what you're moving towards. Uh, so when we're talking about framing, what we're talking about is what does that first proposal look like and how are we opening that 
that conversation. So I think that those types of frames should be really used to create what your expectations are, and they should be identifying who the stakeholders are. So one of the first things that I think people often miss in these types of negotiations, especially when they're on the phone, are trying to understand who the other party is that they're talking to, right? We don't spend enough time on introductions. We don't spend enough time understanding what those people's roles and responsibilities are. And I think that trying to even understand who you're talking to can be something that is is often missed. Hmm. That's really interesting. So when we are at the beginning of the conversation and we're trying to understand the other side, who they are and uh, what their impact and role will be in this negotiation, what are some things that we want to focus on? So I want to know who has decision-making power within the organization that I'm working with. I want to know also what is the process if I'm going to ask for something that's outside of the norm to actually get that product or that change modified, right? So I might literally ask, if I need a price change, are you the person that can do that? Or is there somebody else that you would, would work with within your organization to achieve that? Mm. Now, right. if you ask that question, a lot of times people try to withhold that information, especially if they're not the person. Nobody likes to admit that they sure. have that, that type of power. So if they are a little bit vague with their response, how hard do you push? What type of things would you say? I might just say, you know, tell me a little bit more. Maybe that's not the right question, but could you just tell me about what the process is? Do you need to include a technical stakeholder or do you need to include a VP? You know, do you have a range that you typically work with? But if you're working with an organization like ours that has, you know, extreme growth, is that something that is considered? Mm-hmm. And I feel like most people, they want to, especially in these early stages, build relationships, but they don't want to put up a bunch of blockers. And especially when you take the time to say, who are you? What do you do? You know, tell me about your family. When I walk into a room and it's a, a face-to-face negotiation, I probably know five things about that person immediately. When I'm on the phone or, or online, I don't. And so I'm missing these, you know, facial expressions. I'm missing body language, speed, kind of inflection, all of those key indicators to like maybe how somebody's just feeling today. And those are extremely powerful in building a relationship and also just moving a, a conversation forward. So bringing back those kinds of items to who is the person I'm actually dealing with? What kind of pressures are they under? Did they have breakfast today? Are they like hungry? What, you know, seems kind of simple, but it does pay dividends over the course of the relationship. Absolutely. And I remember reading one of these great courses, negotiation books. I forget the name of the person who authored that one in particular, but one of the things he said was... In his research, he found a study where one group of people were reading, were negotiating, and they were instructed to try to build rapport at the beginning of the negotiation. And the other uh, group of people were just instructed to get down to business and try to negotiate. Not surprisingly, the people who tried to build rapport at the beginning were more successful. They had more favorable outcomes. And so even though it might seem superfluous or it might seem a little bit forced uh, in the digital space, it does have an impact if you're negotiating via email to to take the time to build rapport. And I, I'm not sure if I said it explicitly, but these were email <laughs> negotiations in the, in right. the study. Yeah. 
Right. And I think, I think that this would kind of hop in around a little bit about what some of our key topics are, but none of these techniques should be used or none of these technologies should be exclusive to one another, right? They should be an entry point to another conversation or they should be a, a tool to communicate most effectively. But one of the things that I found really interesting, so in my class, I've had all of our students run digital simulations, right? So they go through a course and they are given two different unequal kind of roles to play. And they're asked to do some of them face-to-face, and then they're asked to do the others completely online or with one phone call. And people going into it expect that because they spend so much time on email that it's going to be faster, that it's going to be something that is easier for them because they can say no more effectively. What we find is that they're actually less likely, and we consider this part of the compliance effect, right? So if you ask somebody to do something, will they actually do it? We find that if you ask somebody over email versus in person or even on the phone, that it's significantly less likely to be successful. And we're talking at a rate of like 34 to 1. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. wow. Like, right. So people are, are vastly overestimating the p- power of their compliance through digital means and underestimating it in person. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people would assume it is the other way around because of the fact that email leaves a very clear digital paper trail. But what you're saying is that it's the exact opposite. Even though it does leave a paper trail, it doesn't lead to compliance. That's correct. And one of the other things that's really interesting is that we see that people are more likely to lie, to exaggerate, bluff, right? So you don't have to hold a poker face when you're writing over email. But what's also interesting about that is that that lives on, right? So what you've said is is contained forever. Right. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of challenging when you, you've dug in this hard line as this unreasonable person trying to intimidate. And that's not really what you're you're trying to achieve with a long-lasting relationship. That's insane. I, I can't <laughs> believe it. That's crazy. That's shocking. But Hey, I'm Michael Kovnat, host of The Next Big Idea Daily. The show is a masterclass in better living from some of the smartest writers around. Every morning, Monday through Friday, we'll serve up a quick 10-minute lesson on how to strengthen your relationships, supercharge your creativity, boost your productivity, and more. Follow The Next Big Idea daily wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I can see where there would be a greater propensity to lie because there is a little bit less empathy. There is that human connection is lost to a certain extent. 
So if you can dehumanize somebody, you can treat them poorly. It's easier for them to be treated poorly when you have that that distance. But it, it's interesting, right. even considering, again, the digital paper trail, that they'd be willing to make that risk. But I think that's that's really great for us to know when it comes to how we manage ourselves in these difficult conversations and, and how we talk about certain things and which medium we use to talk about certain things as well. And even in that case, when we're talking about efficacy, we're not necessarily even getting the best out of those mediums. So when I ran that same simulation on my students this month, as I did last year, and I had those, those folks do it in person, there was no brainstorming that occurred on the digital space. They spent, some of the students ended up spending like three or four hours going back and forth, just, you know, typing out responses. Whereas if they were in a face-to-face encounter, that would have been an hour, mm-hmm. right? And so is that even actually saving us time is a real question. Wow. Okay. And so now this this is going to be difficult for you to answer in just a general sense, but we'll see <laughs> we'll see if this if this if this works. When it comes to email versus phone call, let's assume that the person is in a location where we can't meet them face to face. It's not practical. So email, mm-hmm. phone call, text message. Let's throw that one in there too. What conversations would you have via email? What would you do via text and what would you do via email? phone call. So just even stepping back a little bit, I would probably, for the most part, work to make sure that I'm replicating the tools that we have in a face-to-face encounter as much as possible. So the best is going to be something like a video conference if you're using it well, right? But things that I think are really effective in email are if we want to track back to specific proposals, if we want to itemize items that are could get lost, like a specific user count, a dollar value, right? Things that are not as effective are maybe an implementation plan, how we're going to, to move forward together, what our joint marketing is going to look like, right? So those kinds of things are not as effective. But I, as I said, I think they all need to be used kind of in conjunction. So you might say as a process, my first email is going to establish how are we going to engage, what times work, and what kind of a response am I going to offer. Also, it's going to anchor you with what my first expectation is going to be, right? What, what's the dollar value I want to see? What are the kind, what's the range in the bargaining mix? And then I would reach out via phone, video conference, et cetera, to get feedback on that and say what's working for you and what's not in this next phase. That is brilliant. So essentially what we're doing is we're using the email to set up and frame the conversation, but not to actually have the substantive conversation. Right. And I mean, we may have back and forth on it, but we want to humanize it as much as possible. And even when we're doing that, some of the things we want to really achieve, it's like we want, you know, when we're talking, I guess, about like using a video conference, we want to look prepared. We want to look at the actual camera, not at ourselves. We want to look at, you know, are you wearing pants? Do you have, are you, (laughs) if you have other people in the room, are you talking to the camera so that everybody feels like they're being treated equally? Or are you talking, you know, in person, whispering to somebody and then turning back? Are you kind of like multitasking? So I think that it's important when you're doing those encounters to replicate 
the consideration that you would give somebody in a face-to-face encounter as much as possible and be respectful of their time. So it doesn't look like you're clicking around and typing a bunch or that you're ignoring one person completely, right? Right. And it's easy to do. And and that's where the pitfalls start. I love it. No, that's brilliant. Especially looking at the camera. That's that's something that's <laughs> easy <laughs> easy to to mistake. Easy mistake to make, I should say. Because I know even for me, I do video calls all the time. Sometimes in in my mind, I try to think of them like a person who's physically in front of me. So I look into their eyes, but then that's not where the camera is. So it looks like I'm <laughs> off to the left or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and I mean, can so that that and that kind of brings up an interesting experience, right? So when we're trying to convey trust and seriousness to another person in in person, we look them in the eye. What does it mean when we're not actually doing that? When we're kind of faking it, right? I think it's, it's best if you literally can move the screen as close to your camera as possible, so that you are kind of affecting that look. But if you're looking back and forth, typically people read a lot of jerky eye movements as as mistrustful or dishonesty, and we don't want to replicate or or exacerbate that feeling when we already have physical distance. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really, really helpful. And when it comes to the, the next point that you're making with digital purchasing and how it's impacted our perception of what's acceptable to negotiate or what's on the table, what did you mean there? So what I mean in, in a lot of contexts, what you'll see is you're going to package up something, right? You might, they might say, I have an offer for you and you're going to get a DocuSign package. And that DocuSign package appears that either you need to take it or leave it, right? Or they, you receive terms in a EULA and it looks like you need to click on that term or walk away. And I think that the way that we're packaging things like that gives the perception that they're immutable or that they're binary. And that's not true. <laughs> that's, just, that's absolutely not true. So for me, right, especially when I'm buying something of consequence or with any, any real dollar value, if I look at the EULA or the end user license agreement that's a click through and those terms will not work for me, it's totally appropriate to pull a side agreement that is authorized by the officers of that company. And I think that, like I said, because we're so used to clicking through, it appears to be a, a take it or leave it. And a lot of what you'll see in those things are auto renewal, you know, no term for convenience, a limitation of liability that's unreasonably low, right? Or even a waiver of, of any responsibility. And that's not really the case. That's, and that's not the spirit of what you're trying to achieve with your agreements otherwise. Right. And you know what's really interesting is that we can look at this offensively and defensively. So from the defensive perspective, like you like you mentioned, what we need to do is recognize that these things are negotiable, even though they might not seem as though they are negotiable because of the way that they're packaged. But from an offensive perspective, it's a brilliant tactic because what Absolutely. happens is it's an anchor. It is a very, very strong anchor. And so when it is kind of bolstered by the appearance of the status quo, it makes it less likely that people are going to challenge those provisions that are heavy handedly drafted in their favor. Right. And I think it also gives the illusion of standardization, right? It's the compliance 
effect. And it's this kind of bandwagon effect also where, oh, well, this is what everybody signs. This is the normal course of action. And you're less likely to try to push against those or try to find friction. Once you maybe have agreed on a price, it'll just just be a click through. Right. You know, I don't think that that's usually very advantageous. So for somebody who is faced with that, how would you start the conversation when you're saying, hey, these standard terms, I'm using air quotes as I say standard (laughs) terms (laughs) that you provided me with in this DocuSign, they don't work for me. What would be the first step in having those negotiations? Right. So I would actually go back to the first topic that we had, which is, is framing that interaction. So when I ask for a proposal, I don't want just what your costs are. I'd ask for them to provide me any and all documents that I would be required to adhere to. And so I'm not saying sign because maybe a frontline sales rep doesn't hear that a EULA is a signature, though it carries the same weight and force of law. I want to know inclusive of your privacy agreements, your your click-throughs, any of those types of things, what is included that I need to be reviewing so I can get a whole picture of the deal. I like that. No, that's that's a really great way to start. And then that essentially lets them know exactly what's going to happen next, right? Because the only reason that you would ask for that is <laughs> if they're if it's going to be reviewed to some level. And so I think that's a that's a really great right. way to open the conversation. And you know, to some degree, not all of those if you're if you're talking about 50 bucks, you might just waive it, right? But if you're talking 10,000 or more, you're these are things that you want to probably consider. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. No, I really like that. I really like that. And then I know we spent so much time on number one <laughs> that I wish we could <laughs> go into number two in more depth, but I want to make sure we still have time for number three. But before we do, I, I think this is a really great sign. That means you're you're probably going to have to be a repeat guest. So <laughs> that's good news. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is my favorite topic. I could talk about it all the time and loving, I absolutely love people who want to hear about it. So. Fantastic. Well, this it's is great. the place for you. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So number three, how has the use of technologies changed how we conduct negotiations, including expectations related to speed and honesty? And we started to talk about this a lot in in number one, but I I really want to get deeper into the honesty side because whenever I talk about getting information from the other side in my workshops, inevitably somebody asks, what about dishonesty? What if I'm getting information, but it's not (laughs) true information? So in these conversations digitally, what can we do to try to vet the information that we're getting? Well, I was going to say, I, the first thing that I try to take take inventory of is at the, the, the information that I'm actually putting out. So does my email sound angry? Does it sound more forceful or disconnected than what I would normally sound like if I was speaking? And so for me, I want to start with, with reading those back to myself, both in my normal voice, like, oh, you know, dear so-and-so, hope you're having a nice day. And then you know, go into those next spaces. And then I also want to do it with my like really nasty, snotty voice, right? That's like, hey, how are you? This this kind (laughs) of dip, because we are going to assume, number one, that anything that we were, that's received is probably going to be read in the worst version of ourselves. So even one thing when we're, we're just 
protecting dishonesty, we're going to assume it more likely when we're encountering a digital space. I would ask that if you're trying to, when you're getting these types of things in writing, people discussing their state of being needs to be a timeout opportunity. If somebody's saying like, I'm very angry, I'm very frustrated, I want to see these kinds of modifications to our price, yada, 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 right? I would say, great. I, I hear what you're saying. I want to take a timeout and step back because you're expressing a lot of frustration and I want to make sure that we've addressed that before we move on to anything else. I think, you know, it's, it's like an opportunity for a ceasefire, but I would, I would mirror that back to them and say, I'm receiving a lot of what I, appears to be conflicting information or I'm receiving what seems to be like extremely what I, I consider exaggerated or hyperbolic. But I think that it's an, this is an opportunity for us to level set and maybe start fresh because you're going to get people who are fairly meek or fairly quiet, but respond when they're doing an email, like this is a final notice. This is my absolute, you know, I am livid kind of stuff mm. that they would never actually approach. That's really interesting, it, it, especially from a personality perspective, how the personality manifests itself differently in person versus on the phone versus in email, because I've, I've noticed that sometimes too. So what are some things that people can do when it comes to that transition? And when I say transition, I mean, if you are having a, an email exchange and then you have to move into a phone call, how would you frame the phone call if you decide it's best to kind of clear the air over the phone? How would you frame that email leading into the phone call? Right. I would say, here's what I'm, I'm detecting and here's the items that I think that we need to discuss on our call. So I would give a very clear agenda for what what's on the table to negotiate. And I also would, would ask them to come to the table to brainstorm with me on a phone call what kinds of solutions we could achieve, right? Because I want them to, to I want to either know if they are a bad faith negotiator, right? And if they say, you know, are going to reject my, you know, inroads to try to come to a solution, I don't, there may not be a deal there. And so you don't want to bury a lot of hours in something that's not going to come to fruition. Mm, that makes sense. And I really like the way that you framed it too, because you're in the email leading into that conversation, you are framing it as a brainstorming session and, and working with the other side. And so that helps them to think about it in a more collaborative way, because you don't typically brainstorm <laughs> with enemies, right? Right. And you don't brainstorm on email because it looks like those are agreements. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So it, it's clearer when it's a brainstorming session to do it in person. Or on the phone. Right. Right. And if you always start with, look, this is, I, I'm not making any commitments here. I'm trying to, to see what kind of a package, right? We know that we no, need to have puts and takes to get to an agreement what could some of those items be? Right. Where can we flex? Right. Because there's still, you know, when somebody's looking maybe at their catalog, that's really myopic for what I can give and take. Right. But that doesn't talk about the shape of money, the speed of money, you know, different risk parameters that somebody might be concerned about, scalability in the future, 
additional services, all of those kinds of elements that are of relevance for the, the relationship. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This is great. This is great. And I, I it, this is a lot of restraint on my side because I want to keep asking questions, uh, but <laughs> but we we have to be respectful of the time of the listeners. But sure. before you go, can you tell the listeners what again what type of exciting projects you're working on and how they can get in touch with you? Again, so I I work for a company called Discover Org. We are expanding rapidly into the market, but we can offer lots and lots of different firmographic tools that allow your sales teams, your recruiting teams to be better and able to have the right type of data that they know or they need for sales intelligence right away. On the other side, I am, you know, the University of Portland is absolutely accepting new students. (laughs) And we love, we love ambitious MBA students that have, are, are looking to be leaders in our community and, you know, kind of grow the business for our region and the country, et cetera. Fantastic. Perfect. Well, Liz, thank you again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure as always. And I I look forward to seeing you when you come to Portland. Absolutely. I'm excited to be there. That's going to be fun. (laughs) Yeah. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.